we can't expect ourselves to do everything. And if we keep meeting that expectation, that expectation will never go away. In fact, it only gets even more challenging because you'll keep saying, well, I did it last time. I can, I can continue to do it. This idea of powering through, like we need to, we need to get rid of that because it's, it only, it's a recipe for burnout. Hi, I'm Agrita Dandrell and welcome to Mindful of Everything, a podcast that cultivates a space for socially and environmentally conscious minds, actively striving to achieve greater ecological and community healing for a safer and healthier planet. Today's episode is an International Women's Day special episode where I got to have a lovely conversation with Aparna Sagaram a marriage and family therapist who specialises in supporting South Asian families, couples and individuals. Being a second-generation American Indian, Aparna is very familiar with the emotional tolls of immigration, but also the negative impacts of toxic cultural customs on women that tend to be carried forward by immigrant families. Therefore, her work as a therapist helps South Asian families and individuals normalise mental health and trauma healing. And most importantly, Her work helps to shine light on the disproportionate effects of restrictive thought patterns on the livelihoods of South Asian women and how they can work towards breaking out of trauma cycles. What really motivated you and kind of inspired you to become a marriage and family therapist? And was this something that you've always wanted to do? I know it's a big question. There's loads of things that kind of you know, make you want to go down a certain path. But if you could tell us how your journey has been so far, it would be good. Yeah, sure. Um, So I actually um, initially started school hoping to become a dentist. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Wow, quite different. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of like South Asian kids can relate to this, right? Like you, your parents have this like path for you. And then I started it and I just like absolutely hated it. I didn't even start dental school. I started like the biology classes and I was like, this is not for me. (laughs) Um, And so interestingly, my mom is actually a social worker. Oh, okay. Um, She was a social worker in India. Um, And so she's always kind of like emphasized community service and like helping people. And so that's something that I just sort of grew up with. Right. Mm -hmm. And then once I decided that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to pursue dental school, I um, switched over to public health. And like that opened up a lot of avenues for me because I, I started to see that I could still kind of be in the healthcare field, but also like help people on a more one-to-one level. And then what actually sparked my interest in therapy was um, I did this internship at my university for working with um, substance abusing pregnant women. Um, but we were focusing more on the sort of the trauma piece to that. And I, I just found it so fascinating that like drug use is often just the symptom of like what's actually happening. Yeah. And addiction is, you know, addiction is such a complicated issue in itself. But I was really interested in like how people get to where they are. Um, and so that's when I pursued this degree and specializing in working with children of immigrants. Also something that kind of fell into my lap. There's very few just South Asian therapists in Philadelphia. Totally. So that's just kind of like the a lot of the clientele that I get. But I've really learned to I've really like fell in love with it along with doing my own work you know, my own healing, and then also helping clients. It's it's a really interesting parallel process. So that's kind of where I'm from. So in terms of the demographics of your clients, are they mostly South Asian? Yeah, so I would say it's, it's actually, I would say majority South Asian, but I have a, a pretty good mix of um, 
just all different cultures. And also, again, like a mix of just couples, families and individuals. But yeah, I would say the majority, at least 50% are South Asian. So I'm pretty sure we all know trauma is a very sensitive topic, especially in close knit communities like South Asian ones. And I also believe that it's particularly difficult for those trauma survivors that aren't able to kind of accept their trauma, realize that they have PTSD. And many of these survivors end up realizing that they are suffering from PTSD, but later on in their lives. So do you think that South Asian women, based on your own work, are perhaps better at identifying their traumas? And do you think they're more willing to kind of seek professional help compared to their male counterparts? This is kind of what we expect. But do you think this kind of plays out in reality as well? Yeah, I mean, I do. Unfortunately, I do think it is more accepted for women to get help, right? Yeah. Like you think about social media and all that too, right? Like I feel like the people that are more likely to engage on social media, you know, there's a lot of mental health accounts out there too, right? The majority of people that follow that are women too. Yeah. And I think just from an early age, right? Like men are generally taught to like suppress their feelings or like figure it out on your own or like be the man of the house, right? Like, so when you're, when you grow up with all of those concepts, right? It's hard to, you know, be in your twenties and thirties and then feel like you need to ask for help. So I think oftentimes asking for help feels like really shameful or feels like you couldn't do something on your own. But I think for women, it's a little bit different. They ha- I think that women are like tend to be a lot more social women, you know, chat with their friends and they ask for help and they're like, Oh, what do you think about this? What do you th-? It's like, it feels like a little bit more of a collective mindset. And I think generally with men, which is unfortunate because it's how you're raised, right? It's not like this is not in our blood. It's just how you're raised. Yeah. And so men tend to be more isolated about how they're feeling and what they're going through. And I feel like within South Asian communities and cultures themselves, that sort of difference between how men and women are raised up is quite evident. And then you start seeing that play out when things like trauma talked about, discussed about, and you kind of see that, you know, women have always been really vocal about their experiences and men are told to kind of keep it in. So keeping that in mind, so based on your own work, do more South Asian women come to you? Yeah. Yeah, I do see a lot of South Asian women. Um, If I see a South Asian man, it's generally through a couple or a family, right? Yeah. Because I think it's like, it's easier to ask for help through like a system mm-hmm. than it is to just, you know, ask, seek it for yourself. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's definitely a lot more South Asian women. So I am a first generation British Indian. I've immigrated to the UK with my parents and sister back in uh, 2005. And the journey has, of course, been really amazing, but it hasn't been without struggles. You yourself are a second generation American Indian, so I'm pretty sure you know and you're familiar with the sort of issues that arise with immigration and also settling into a completely different culture from back home. So do you think that the progress of um, immigration tends to amplify the traumas of immigrant women particularly and those traumas that perhaps originated back home or they started off during the immigration process? I know this sounds contradictory because lots of immigrants kind of, you know, migrate because they want a fresh new start. But do you think that PTSD and trauma can be triggered or amplified when you migrate to a different country? Yeah. So actually, um, immigration is considered a trauma, mm-hmm. right? Um, anything that that causes like a change, right? Yeah. So like being being a refugee or being an immigrant or, you know, like a Holocaust survivor, like all these are considered traumas. So with, when you think about immigrants, right, they're moving to a different country. Oftentimes they don't speak the same language, right? Yeah. They have no support. And if you're coming over with family, right, like the pressure is on the parents to make sure that your kids are like fed and clothed and right, like so that, that physical safety and stability is what they're trying to attain. And so it is it is considered a, a very big trauma to not have that support system. 
I think is what amplifies that, right? Because you're coming here and you don't know anyone, right? So you're trying to like set roots, but you're also trying to allow it so that your children can also bloom at, you know, in the the country that they move to. Um, It's definitely something that we see a lot. Yeah, I think it's especially difficult for those families that don't, like you said, have that support mechanism. So they don't have family here. Uh, For example, my parents, we didn't have anyone. So to kind of get used to everything, plus you know educate your children raise them up it's just it is really difficult and it's kind of weird how we don't see immigration as a sort of trauma that's not something that I really hear about so it's really good that you picked that up you know immigration is supposed to be like a good thing for the person that's migrating but people don't realize you know the traumas are linked to that yeah it's also really interesting oftentimes when we talk about traumas right like people tend to emotionally freeze at that age in which the trauma had happened yeah so a lot of children of immigrants they tend to say that their parents it seems like their parents are very emotionally immature or that they just don't understand right Mm -hmm. but if you think about where it comes from right like oftentimes parents immigrate in their like you know early 20s or mid 20s right and they're trying to like set up a whole life here right yeah and so they emotionally freeze at that age so when you surpass the age at which your parents had come you'll start to see that emotional difference that like what you're capable of and what they're yeah, capable of so true. and so I often yeah so I often encourage clients to like just like build empathy around that right like kind of meet your parents where they are like just because they're not able to emotionally express in the way that you need them to it doesn't mean that they don't want to, it's that they don't know how to, right? And they don't have the same tools that maybe we have today. And so I think it's just building empathy and understanding around that. You know, it's not to excuse poor behavior or to excuse abusive behavior. Of course. But just to kind of help you understand that, where they're coming from. So actually linking to that, the term intergenerational trauma has been used quite a lot, especially in the field of trauma therapy. Um, And many people use it to bring light to this concept of trauma being transgenerational, so being passed from older generations to younger ones. There's also been a lot of focus on the impacts of intergenerational trauma for mothers and how their trauma is passed on to their children, especially their daughters. So do you think that this concept of intergenerational trauma is beneficial for the healing of um, older generations, especially mothers? And do you think that it can kind of bridge the gap between generations or do you think it causes a further generational divide? Like you said, you need to be empathetical towards your parents and old generations. But do you think it kind of helps to look at this concept? Yeah, I think this concept of generational trauma, I think actually makes it takes the pressure off of one generation to feel like that they have to heal everything. Yeah. Right. And so like so much of of who we are today is because of our parents, our grandparents, great grandparents. Right. And so if you if you take some time to kind of like look comb through your family history, you'll start to see like, what are the patterns that get passed down, right? Oftentimes, it's learned behaviors, it's positive and negative patterns, right? Like your work ethic, how you spend money, like how you take care of yourself, all this is passed down, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think the key here, right, with the, the whole concept of generational trauma, it's so, super important. But the flip side to that is the self-awareness piece, right? Like, if you're not self-aware, you're not going to know what to do with all these things that you're thinking about now, right? You're like, how do I break the cycle of, um, you know, in a meshed family, right? Or how do I break the cycle of maybe your family tends to hold a lot of secrets, right? That, that's a toxic pattern that is very common in South yeah. Asian families because it's this idea of like, what will people think if they know our, our business, right? 
So in order to break that, you have to first know that that's a, something that that is generational. And so it's it's really combing through and starting to understand, like, what are some of these patterns that you hold? And it's it's really helpful to kind of see your parents in action, right? Like, what are, what are the things that they talk about? Who do they hang out with? What are their, how do they fight? How do they, um, how to take care of themselves? All of these are, it's, it's information to help you see, like, where that comes from. So do you think that generational trauma is especially important for mothers like you said, women are more obviously vocal about what they're experiencing. And I've seen quite a lot of times where the mother would have experienced something. And then when the child grows up and they're seeing their mother suffering and stuff, that does sort of pass on. So do you think it's even more important that we focus on how mothers deal with their trauma and the impacts of that on their children? I mean, I think that it depends on how, like how your family's set up, right? Like if, if your mother is the the main caregiver of the family, then yes, I think it is because yeah. everything that you see and do is through your mother. Right. And a lot of like, especially um, there's this book, it's called it didn't start with you. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. It's by this man named Mark Wolin, I believe. Um, and he talks a lot about how just pregnancy itself, like when a mother is carrying her child, right? Any any trauma that happens in the womb, right? Like you you carry that. You, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, you carry that. And so, yeah, a lot of like these generational traumas and both strengths and traumas get passed through the mother, even even when you're not like physically on earth. And so, yeah, I think it is super important. But again, it's if say your father is a a very strong role in the family, then it would also be very important to like notice all of yeah for him as well. I think everybody, both South Asians and non-South Asians, understand the sort of restrictions that come with South Asian households. There's this general belief that if um, families step out of these hypothetical boundaries, then you know what will people say? It will cause shame to the family, etc. And almost always these boundaries are kind of put in place for South Asian women. It's not just, of course, in the communities and many other communities as well, but just looking at South Asian communities, why do you think that so many families, especially older family members, don't take this distancing as an advantage to kind of break out of these toxic cultural um, norms, um, especially when it comes to women? Yeah. So something that I definitely just like from my clinical experience that I've seen and also even in just like personal experience, right? Is like when, when your when your parents leave a country, right, they hold on to those values from that time period. For example, my parents came in the 80s. So they sort of froze at that, like the value system of India in the 80s, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they come to a new country, right? And so not only are they struggling to evolve with the new country's values, they're also not part of India's evolving. Yeah. So they're kind of stuck between both. And so I think when people, oftentimes people who are, they're trying to just cling on to anything that's familiar, right? It's easy to just cling on to what you know. Yeah. And so they're essentially raising their kids in like 1980s India value system, even though fast forward 20 years and India has evolved significantly. Yeah. But your parents haven't because they're not part of that, nor are they part of what's happening in the US either or wherever country they're in. So their like mindset is still very much 1980s India. And so I think it's really hard to let go of that because A, it's all that they know. And it's also scary, right? Like change can feel really scary and, and you're entering a country that maybe has different values and like maybe feels more threatening to, you know, women, right? It feels like, oh my God, I have to, yeah. you know, because India, I think is a very patriarchal country. So is the US, like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. <laughs> um, 
But if that's what they know, it feels safer, right? So they're like, let's just hold on to these values. I think women in the process really suffer, like especially, you know, daughters are, there's so much that, you know, feels like that they can't do based on being raised in these extremely strict households. I really like how you said that, you know, older generations, they usually tend to freeze in time. That's something that I've never heard about. It's really interesting. But it's so true. For example, I'll be having conversations with my um, mom and my dad about certain things. And they'll be like, oh, no, but people in India don't do that. But then I'll be like, but I've seen, you know, people <laughs> my age. They're like, but they do. <laughs> yeah, they are literally like me. There's no difference. There might be a few cultural differences. But apart from that, they are literally like me. You know, like, like you said, they've evolved so much. And but they're always in this mindset that, you know, they're still from the 1980s. And that whole culture is still going on. So yeah, I really like how you kind of pinpointed that down. It's really important for us to realize that so many people are just frozen in time. And to get out that is difficult, but it's possible. Yeah. And that goes back to the trauma, right? Like when you immigrate to a new country, it's that trauma, like you freeze in that time, essentially. So I saw from your website, and like you said, you don't only offer individual and couple therapies, you also offer family therapy, which is something that I didn't know exists (laughs) um, until I kind of researched a bit more into it. So could you explain how you go about in doing that? And how do you overcome any challenges of like unwilling family members who don't really want to take part in the therapy? As I mentioned before, trauma is taboo in South Asian communities generally. So how do you convince whole families to take part? One thing I don't do is like, I don't convince because if, if someone is not interested, then we like, Let's move on. <laughs> I would spend the entire session. Yeah. I'd spend the entire session trying to convince them why they should be here in the first place. Right. So generally the families that I get, it's usually prompted by the kids, right? Like, so, and they're usually adult kids. Yeah. yeah they want to, you know, we want to have a better relationship with our parents. We want them to understand where we're coming from. Right. And it's interestingly, it's actually, I get a lot of adult children. So like Kim, kids who are adult kids who are in their like late twenties are like, you know, I'm at this age in my life when I'm a full fledged adult and I want to have this adult relationship with my parents, but my parents still see me as like a child or they don't, you know, they're not letting me grow in that way. Right. Yeah. So at that point, it's, it's really interesting that parents are generally willing to surprisingly, but it's the buy-in, right? Like I, I often have to like really warm up to the parents. I have really have to like say like, this is really beneficial for you and your relationship with your children. Like if your kids are important to you, this is something that you want to do. Right. And so like we really work together to help them see. Interestingly, a lot of the work that I actually do is with the kids to help them see like why their parents are the way they are, because I think it's hard. Like, you know, you've been doing this for 60 plus years, oftentimes like parents. Right? And so to ask them to like completely change themselves is very difficult. I think it's easier for kids, for people who were, you know, in this country for much longer to come at it with empathy, right? Empathy and compassion and like really understanding your parents' story, right? Because, you know, we know, we know like the immigrant story, but like, do you really know your parents' immigrant story? Like how they felt, what they did, you know, what was it like? Were they scared? Yeah. All these answers will help you feel that compassion towards your parents. So true. And that, that itself, I think, will start to bridge that gap because it's not about like changing your behavior and changing like, you know, all that's important. But like, if you're not coming from a place of understanding how or why, it's not going to last. Right. And so we, that's what we focus on is kind of 
me helping the parents see their kids' perspective and kids helping see their parents' perspective. And so that's generally what starts to bridge that gap. I think it is a whole issue of misunderstanding as well. And like you said, so many South Asian families tend to have this secret type (laughs) toxic trait going about, you know, nobody really wants to be telling each other what they really feel. And so if you do have that and you're not really kind of seeing where your parents coming from or the parents not seeing where the child is coming from, then it is really difficult to kind of bridge the gap. Do you think it's kind of helpful for parents to see successful examples of therapy I feel like especially my parents they love to see real life examples they want to see that this has worked they don't just want to jump into the deep end so do you provide those examples as well yeah I definitely do um I agree I think that a a lot of South Asian folks even like individuals right they're like does this work right and so like (laughs) you (laughs) you have to talk about the process like what you do like I really get into specific details of like how this works, like what you, what you'll, what to expect. Right. I think a lot of it is that fear of uncertainty. So they'll, I'll, I'll walk them through like what to expect. Um, and that generally helps alleviate some of those anxieties and fears about like what, you know, what are we getting into? Because it's the stigma, right? Like getting help means you're crazy or that like you can't do this on your own or like, you know, that whole, like, what will people think? And so you really got to like break down those myths and, um, help them like really feel comfortable. And oftentimes the first like five to like several sessions are really just getting to know them as people. So then they feel comfortable with you to tell you things. How long do these sessions last? It probably is tailored to the client themselves, but in general, how long do these last? Yeah. Generally, I would say a good, like to see any sort of change, probably a good six months. Ah, Okay. Um, six months to a year but like if if you're consistent and you go every week or even every other week like you will see change it's it's fascinating it is yeah so I haven't been to therapy myself but I've always advocated for it so I don't exactly know how the structure is but yeah that is that is really good so is it like a continuous kind of thing so is it every week or does a client kind of choose when they can go? Yeah. So it's, it's generally like most clients come either every week or every other week. Okay. Um, and so like, if you tend to be, if you're more in like crisis mode and you feel like you need more support, we'll do weekly. But if you feel like, okay, and you want more like check-ins and, you know, talk and like working on more like long-term things, um, we do bi-weekly and, you know, you can, you can be in therapy for three months. You can be in therapy for a year. Like I have clients that I've had for like, you know, three, four years, but people tend to come in and out of therapy. So like when things are bad or they feel like they need a lot of support, they'll, they'll stop, you know, they'll come in again and then they'll be like, Oh, things are good. I'm okay. And then they'll take a break. So it's very sort of like up to the client of how they want to come in and out of therapy. Um, in terms of COVID, I'm pretty sure in-person therapy sessions couldn't obviously work. So did you do everything online? And yeah, do you think that it's easier for people to be in the comfort of their own home? Or do you think it's easier for them to come in person and talk to you? So yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of like a ongoing conversation, right? Like, when COVID first hit, I was actually already set up for tele teletherapy services. I was doing it prior anyway. So I had just told everyone, like, we're going to be meeting virtually. Um, and nobody had seemed like there were no issues with that. There was one or, you know, a few people who were like, I have absolutely no privacy. I cannot do this. So I was like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, fair. Um, but, you know, we're a year in now, right? And so people who had dropped off came back and are like, okay, I figured out a way, like, 
I'll just take a walk when we're talking or like I'll sit in my car. You know, I think people are really adapting to this new way of living. So to end off the episode, it would be great if you could let us know some of the ways that you help South Asian women particularly to break out of their trauma cycles, especially within immigrant households, and how we South Asian women can really prioritize our mental health and happiness over community expectations. So if you could just tell us a few ways. Yeah, so I think the first and like most important step is the self-awareness, right? Like, like I was saying earlier, like understanding, like what are your patterns and behaviors that are repeating that feel like negative? So are you one to, um, do you hold secrets, right? Um, Do you tend to also like, so another um, pattern in South Asian families is just like being very controlling or micromanaging, right? And so like, do you repeat that, right? So if you're, if you're starting to see, like, noticing your friendships or your relationships, right, are you like that? So if, you, if you're starting to see, like, what are the patterns that you're repeating, then we can start to start to tackle each of those. Yeah. And I think a, a very – something that I talk a lot with my South Asian women especially is um, just getting comfortable with letting people down, right? Yeah. Like, I think a lot of – you know, in our community is, like – you know, women are like these like superheroes. They're like literally do everything. Literally. Right? But, <laughs> but then you, you at the end of the day, like they're exhausted, mm-hmm. right? Like absolutely exhausted. I see with my own mom, like she's buzzing around all day. Literally. She comes home and she's like so tired, right? So it's okay to not do everything, right? It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to not like, you know, the people pleasing is a very big um, dynamic in South Asian women, right? And so like getting comfortable with, it's okay if someone, if you say no to someone, right? It's okay if you need to ask someone to do something for you. Like we can't expect ourselves to do everything. And if we keep meeting that expectation, that expectation will never go away. In fact, it only gets even more challenging because you'll keep saying, well, I did it last time. I can, I can continue to do it. This idea of powering through, like we need to, we need to get rid of that because it's, it only, it's a recipe for burnout, yeah, definitely. I feel like that was the most toxic trait that I had to overcome. Sticking to the expectations, not having any breaks, continuing on when you know that you're suffering. That was a main thing that I had to kind of break out of. And it, it took um, some time, especially because I am the oldest daughter. So everybody kind of expects you to be the role model. And if you kind of start changing, then they feel like, you know, you're going to be a bad influence on your sister, on your sibling, etc. I think that pressure is there for especially older daughters to break out of that. But yeah, that is a toxic trait that I had to overcome and tell myself that, you know, this is not normal. And if I continue on doing it, it will hurt me, but it also hurt my parents when I do break out of it at a later stage. So why not start now? I think get used to it. Something else that I wanted to mention was that just because you're prioritizing your own mental health, it does not mean that you're rejecting anybody else or it doesn't mean that you're um, being mean to someone else, right? Like you can prioritize your mental health and still be there for other people. Right. But it's finding that balance, right. Of what is comfortable for you and what is comfortable for them. Right. But oftentimes what happens is we do what's comfortable for the other person at the expense of ourself. Right. Yeah. So we have to, I often work with clients to help them find that balance, right? Like you can still be a nice person and set boundaries, right. You can still be a nice person and prioritize your mental health. And so it's finding that it's getting comfortable with some of these concepts um, and then finding ways to make that happen. So basically self-love is not selfish. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That's something that people just fail to understand, fail to grasp. 
especially because our communities are so giving they they're not really taking <laughs> communities you know it's all about oh give give them all my love my time all the effort but they aren't comfortable in taking some of that um so yeah just to get that balance yeah and it's and it's it's interesting right because it's giving without asking no one no one ever says do you want this do you want it's just it's pushed on you <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then you have to you're like forced to appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> same thing goes with food like they'll just Keep on giving is like, there's no stopping point. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. Okay, thank you so much, Abhana, for coming on the show and having this really lovely conversation. Um, this episode is something that I really wanted to make, but I really wanted to talk to a professional in the field, you know, about trauma therapy within South Asian communities is something that many South Asian individuals and families, couples, etc., just aren't comfortable in kind of exploring further so thank you so much for coming on the show telling us a bit about your work and also your work as well thank you so much for you know working with these communities yeah thank you yeah I'm, I'm so happy to share my knowledge here today um i hope that you know everyone who's listening um feels validated and feels seen and you know tries out therapy because therapy is um does wonders <laughs> There are so many things that Aperna picked up when it comes to identifying key patterns in trauma cycles within South Asian communities that I wouldn't have understood if I hadn't talked to her, so I'm very glad that I could have this conversation with her. Since it's International Women's Day, I feel the need to address the stigma associated with trauma and therapy, especially for my fellow South Asian women that aren't able to have transparent conversations with their families or feel as if they can't. Please do not feel alone. I'm still on the journey of breaking out of toxic cultural norms, but do remember that change starts when you want it to start, when you're comfortable enough for it to start, and when you're in the correct environment and mindset for change to start. Happy International Women's Day again to everyone. If you do enjoy Mindful of Everything, subscribe to the podcast and give the show a five-star podcast review. You can also support the show by buying one of my eco-friendly pin badges. All episode resources, including Aperno's website and social media. Show notes and transcripts can be found on my website, mindfuloveverything.com. If you have any suggestions for the show or just want to say hi, you can email me and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. I hope you're all staying well and safe and hope to see you here again in the next episode.